coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 24th of April, 2022, hated by the world. We rejoin our study in the Upper Room Discourse this morning after taking a little reprieve to look at Passion Week with the, the whole, as we have said, the triumphal entry. Um, we saw the, um, we celebrated a Passover dinner. Then we think in terms of the crucifixion on Good Friday and then the resurrection on resurrection morning and all those elements go together. And now we're sort of returning back to that upper room before Jesus um, moved towards the cross and the crucifixion and dealing with some of those things with his disciples, talking about issues that he knew they were going to face. Chapter 15 begins with a, uh, the picture of the nature of a true follower of Christ who abides in Christ. And he compares that to a fake follower, a, an apparent follower who doesn't abide in Christ and who's cast away and separated and burned. And he goes from that section and that picture into a little bit about the Holy Spirit. We talked about that a little bit. And now he comes to a topic that you go, where did this come from? And it's the topic of hatred from the world aimed at believers and what the Lord has to say about that. We would like to think, and sometimes it floats around, the idea floats around, that once you accept Christ as Savior, everything is going to be peachy keen, nifty neato, and uh, nothing but peaches and cream, if you like peaches and cream, which I do. But anyway, we think that things will be good, but taint necessarily so, is it? Doesn't always happen that way. And Lord makes comment on that. I was reflecting on the faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. We go, what a powerful passage there. We've got Abraham. We've got some of these stalwarts of the faith trusting in, in the living God and God seeing them through. But towards the latter part of Hebrews 11, as he gets down to just giving some who are mentioned by name, he talks about their faith conquering kingdoms, verse 33 of chapter 11, conquering kingdoms, enforcing justice, obtaining promises, stopping the mouths of lions, quenching the power of fire, escaping the edge of the sword, and you go, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, foreign armies put to flight, women receiving their dead by resurrection. And you go, yeah, that's what I like, the victorious Christian life, all good. 
But then in the next line, he goes, and some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings and chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep, goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And you go, wait a minute, I like the former section better. But he says, this is the reality. It's not always good. But then he says, these of whom the world is not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, the story isn't done at the end of chapter 11. Others are going to join. Some are going to be victorious. And some are going to suffer. And so Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15. And if you would open your Bibles again to that passage that Tom read from. John 15, beginning in verse 18. We want to look at, in a summary for a manner this portion of God's word and look at some of the issues and the takeaway points from this passage and other passage. I put in your, your notes, I think I did, key passages, John 15 here, and then also in Matthew 10. We could have gone lots of different places, but I want to pull primarily from those two sections and talk about the world hating believers. In verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And you, you go, well, this is such a come down from that whole idea abiding in the vine, being fruitful, productive life, and now the world hating you. So who, who is mentioned that hates believers? And the first one that's mentioned, obviously, in that first verse is the world. He's not talking about the planet here. He's not saying the planet hates you, although if you were thrown into a patch of blackberries, you might think that. But no, he's not talking about that. What he's talking about is the world system that is, for lack of a better term, ungodly. It is a world that operates as if God had no say in the matter. As if God had no direction giving it. Just going on apart from God. Denying sometimes the existence of God. Sometimes uh, 
refusing to believe that there was even a person who is, could be considered as God, the world system. This is an ungodly world system. And as he says here, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And the point is, we were part of that system. There's not a believer alive who didn't come from that source group who now in turn hates believers. We were among those. And you say, well, I don't remember hating believers before I came to know the Lord. No, the, the idea is a system that is anti-God. Not in, not in the sense of always being adversarial. Sometimes just ignoring. We talk about that in, in our description of the gospel. Sometimes just passively indifferent to, to the things of God. Don't bother me. I don't even want to think about it but sometimes actively resistant. And that's where this theme picks up when the world turns its attention towards believers and says, uh-uh, no. So the first group is the world. The second one might take us off guard, but it is those of false faith. False faith. In John chapter 16 and verse 2, for this segment here in John 15, continues to the first four verses in chapter 16. He says in verse 2, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour will come when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And so we talk about those of false faith. There's a, a passage in 1 Corinthians as Paul is writing to the church there at Corinth. And it gets a little close to home here for it says, as it's addressing what was going on in the church at Corinth, and he says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he says, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And he says, there's factions and divisions among you. And there are false and true believers. Now, I just want to clarify a little sub-point here. He's not talking about the fact that we from time to time have disagreements in the church. What he's talking about, those who are genuine and those who are false. How can we tell the difference between having a squabble with a fellow believer or we're dealing with an unbeliever within our midst? How can we tell the difference? And the answer is 
fairly easy? And the answer is, are they approachable? Are they approachable to be brought to be dealing with this issue in a godly manner, or are they not? Do they, in Scripture, it talks about procedures, like in Matthew chapter 18, what happens if you have something against a brother, you go to him and you talk to him, and then if that doesn't work, you go and you take a couple others, and if that doesn't work, you, you bring him before the church. There is a process and we see that process in the church in Corinthians because they had a, a man who is having relationships with his stepmom. And he says, Paul writes to them and says, this ought not to be, kick him out of the church. And let Satan have his way with him. And then by the time you get to chapter, the second Corinthians, we see a repentant man who, having been faced with his sin, comes to the place of confession and repentance. And Paul writes and says, now let him back in. He says, we sent him out so that he could experience what it was like to be separated from the fellowship. But now bring him back in because he's a brother and he needs to have this fellowship. What was... The difference between that and what Paul was writing here in 1 Corinthians 11, telling the difference between those who are genuine and those who are fake, the fact that a person was approachable and finally came to the place of repentance and restoration. That's the difference. That's the difference. Those that were not of them went out from them never to return. Even this man who was put out of the fellowship in 1 Corinthians came back to the place of saying, no, I want back in. I'm willing to confess. I'm willing to repent. And he says, welcome back in. He needs that. But it goes from the world to those of false faith to probably one of the hardest ones, even family members are part of this hatred towards believers. Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, brother will, bro will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all my name's sake. But the one who endures the end will be saved. In Matthew 10, a little bit further down in that, in that section, verses 35 and 36, he says, I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. But all of these fall under the category of the first one. Whether they're family members, whether they're people in our midst in the fellowship, 
where the world, there's two groups. One, those in God and those that are not. And he says the ones that are not are the ones that are in opposition to those that are. And I was thinking, why, why would some of these be listed? Because Paul, because Jesus is giving warning here in John chapter 15, saying that they're going to come after you. But I was thinking, you might be able to take it from the world, because they might be out there that don't know them, but they're in opposition to the things of God. But what about those who profess to be of the faith? What about family members? I think that what the Lord was talking about here is he says, at that point, we're dealing with those that we care about. The religious leaders of the day were the religious leaders of the day. And if they were in opposition to you, that would have a profound impact on you. And as the disciples then were raised in the culture of Judaism, the Pharisees were those to look up to. The priests were those to look up to. And if these are against you, you go, that could cause you to pause and wonder and to think, am I in the right? Am I doing what's right? What about the family member who stands up against you? I mean, that's pretty profound statements. He says, even to turn family members over for death. Man against his father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be of his own household. Wow. That gets you. It's not the unknown. It is the known. It is those that are close. But the question comes up, if we're so good, if we are living right, why in the world would people hate us? Why why would they be in opposition to us? Remember what it said in, in Galatians? Come on now. In Galatians, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Why? Because this is all good stuff. And if we're practicing this, why would they be against us? There's not even a law to be on the books against it. Why would these people be in opposition to us being people like that? One little disclaimer here. If you're doing wrong, though, I can understand and the scripture talks about 
then it's only right that you are opposed if you're doing what's wrong. But assuming that we're not talking about that, assuming we're talking about a person going about living the godly life, trying to be obedient to Christ, trying to manifest the, the fruit of the Spirit, if we're, if we're that kind of a person abiding in Christ, a, a follower of Christ, if we're doing those things, why in the world would people hate that and be opposed to us? I'm going to give you two reasons. One, they don't know Jesus or his father. They just don't know. And that's what, that's what Jesus says here in John chapter 15. In verse 21, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And then down in verse 3 of chapter 16, he says, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. So why are they in opposition to us as believers? Because they don't know where our faith came from. They don't know Jesus. They don't know who God is. Now, that's not saying they don't know of him. They don't know him. And that, that idea is one of intimacy, one of relationship. They don't have a relationship with the living God. And so they're in opposition to God. But there's the second element that, it, that reveals why that is an issue to them. First of all, they don't know Jesus or his father. Why then are they upset? He says, because Jesus and we as followers of Christ reveal the truth about their spiritual condition. That's why they're upset. Over and over in scripture, when you ran up against a person who is a follower of the living God, and he started speaking truth, people got upset. John chapter 8 is a great message by Jesus Christ, and he speaks to the Pharisees, and he talks to these religious leaders and of course, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, they're plotting to put him away and kill him. But in that passage, he talks about the idea of, to my followers, they understand I'm giving out the truth. But what happens when you turn a light on in a dark room? You can see everything that was hidden before. And if its room hasn't been cleaned, you notice it. If there have been mice or cockroaches, they scurry back for the darkness. They don't like that light. And so the second point, they not only know, don't know Jesus or his father, don't have a relationship with him, but whether it's Jesus or his father or his followers, 
we reveal unbelievers' spiritual condition. Jesus said this to Nicodemus. We're very familiar with John chapter 3 and especially verse 16. But listen to what he said a little bit later, a couple verses down in our record. And he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so may clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Remember, I was talking about the difference between a true follower of Christ and a person who wasn't within the body of faith. And here's the description. He says, you turn the light on those that are doing evil, they want to run from it. You turn the light on those that are doing good, they want to run towards it. Why? He says, this is where I live. This is my life. I operate in relationship with the person who said, I am the light of the world. So that's why the world would hate. That's why John records this account of Jesus giving warning to his disciples about the world hating them. But he goes on and he talks about how we are to respond. What happens when the world turns their hatred towards us? And again, Paul gives us an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He's talking to the church there and he says, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. I think he was doing it tongue-in-cheek to them because they were, you know, they were so spiritually in tune. And he says, we are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor. We are in dispute, disrepute. He says, for the present time, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Then he gets to the point of how we respond. And he says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. If you are slandered, why, why would you entreat? He said, because we've been given the ministry of what? Reconciliation. To bring someone to Christ. And if someone gets on our case... Our response shouldn't be, oh yeah, well I can up that one better, but rather to absorb that and say, but do you see what the Lord is offering you to as well? It says we become and still are the scum of the earth, the refuge of all things. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. So our first response to persecution is to not respond in kind. Don't, 
If they are in our face, we don't get in their face. That is the point. But rather, to trust the Lord to guide our speech and our response to those who hate us. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, he says, and when they deliver you over, and Jesus is giving warning now, it's going to happen. When they deliver you over, he says, don't be anxious. Don't be concerned. Don't worry about what you're to speak or what you're to say. For what, I will, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, this was the admonition of the Lord talking about the fact that the Lord would give us as followers of his when we're put on the spot, the words to speak in response. If we've humbled ourselves before him and say, Lord, I want to respond in kind. That's not the right way. I want to respond in a gracious, loving manner. How can I speak? He says, then the Holy Spirit can use us and speak to us. In Acts chapter 4, we see an example of that. In Acts chapter 4, we, we've accounted for this before, but in Acts chapter 4, um, Peter and John have been pulled and were arrested, and then uh, the Lord released them. And they were back in the temple, and we talked about this a little bit. And so then they went and picked them up out of the temple and brought them before the, the uh, council. And they, they're trying to admonish him, don't talk anymore about Jesus. And he had responded. And he says, uh, we're examined today because of what we've done. Let, let all men know that we've done this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead. And then when they saw the boldness, and I love this, verse 19, or 13, and when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And that's exactly a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. That as you then have to give defense of your faith, it says, be trusting in the Holy Spirit then to give you the words to speak. He says, and this is the third response to those who hate you. He says, have no fear of them. Don't be afraid of them. We go, well, that's easy. Up until the point that they start threatening me, <laughs> then I'm afraid. And he, he makes a comparison here. He says, of course, what they're going to say is they're going to try and inflict fear on you by what they say and what they do. That's what they want to do. They want to intimidate you. They want you to back down. 
That's what the council was trying to do to Peter. Said, I, by a show of force, by a show of our strength, we want you to buckle under and we're going to use the tool of fear on you. Listen to what he says in verse 26 of chapter 10 of the book of Matthew. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that, not will, be, that will not be known. In other words, what he says is, whatever is happening in the inner chambers, outer chambers, in public, God sees it all. He knows exactly what's going on. And I tell you in the... And what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He says, if you're going to have proper fear, fear someone else. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, he says, you ought to be afraid of the one who has eternity in his hand. You ought to be afraid of him. You ought to be respectful of him. Don't be afraid of these. He says, are there not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. This context that we like to pull out of context is in this aspect of fearing those who would persecute you. And he says, fear not, therefore you are more valuable than sparrows. To whom? Not to those who are fear-mongering. You're more valuable to the Father. So our response should not be to fear them. What we see of Peter in Acts was they perceived his boldness. And they saw his boldness. They perceived they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. They recognized they'd been with Jesus. That's exactly the impact that we should have on those who are fear-mongering. But there's one other response. We go back to our passage in John chapter 15. This whole segment here, as you read through it, as he makes comment about it, he then comes to the first few verses in chapter 16, and he says this in verse 1. I have said all these things to you in order to keep you from falling away. He says, how, is, how should we respond? Don't fall away. Be persistent in abiding. Be persistent in following. Be persistent. Don't fall away. And I appreciate so much the fact that Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And within hours, they were going to see Jesus taken from the garden, go through a mockery of a trial, taken before 
Pilate and Herod, and then be taken out and crucified and killed on the cross. And their whole world would be in upheaval. And if there could ever be a, a foundation for fear, it was going to be what was going to happen in the hours to come. And he says, don't be afraid of these things. Be persistent in following me. I said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Don't fall away. Encouragement is the same to our hearts. We're not put in a position of being under active persecution. But I can tell you, there is opposition all the time going on. Sometimes greater, sometimes lesser. And sometimes it comes close to home. Sometimes a family member will be just as Jesus described in opposition to the truth and the, and the person of truth, Jesus Christ, and therefore in opposition to you and to me. And the Lord graciously, mercifully said, I'm not going to let you walk in to this situation without your eyes being open. I want you to be prepared. Know what's going on. Walk humbly with your God. Show mercy and grace. Be ministers of reconciliation. And be persistent. And don't fear because all the time we're watching and we're the one who's going to ultimately reward you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and the world. They're in the midst of active persecution with death threats and death on the line. And we can be thankful that we're not in that place. But we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray for awareness as you have given warning that we be on our toes, attentive to the things that are going on. And Heavenly Father, we will respond with mercy and grace. We ask in Jesus' name.